this morning. Please open your copy of Scripture to the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, that's fine. We, um, we have extra copies under the chairs in front of you, and you're welcome to follow along. If you're going to use one of those Bibles under the chair, it's on page 1,211, 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about Mailman Mike. You say, who's Mailman Mike? He was my mailman when I was growing up, when I was just a little kid, in Warren, Michigan, near Hoover and 11 Mile Road. We're talking the early 70s, early to mid-70s. And I loved Mailman Mike. I loved his uniform. I thought he looked like a police officer, and I even asked him once, let me see your gun. And uh, he looked at me and laughed, and uh, he knew my name, and he was just a, a polite, elderly gentleman that walked the mail through our whole neighborhood. Man, I loved it when he showed up at our house. Because back in that day, in the 70s, long before laptops, iPhones, Amazon, long before all that, there was a wonderful piece of technology that was circulated through the mail. They were called mail order catalogs. Remember those? Didn't take any batteries. And they came from companies such as Sears, J.C. Penney, but my favorite one was from a, a, a mail-only company. Uh, as far as they, you had to order from them, they didn't have a storefront. It was called the Johnson Smith Company. And they sold novelties, just clean, fun novelties. And whenever I got their catalog, I would pour over it, and I would order things or have my mom order things like x-ray glasses, ice cubes, fake ice cubes with flies in the middle, Disappearing ink, which really worked. Various magic tricks, various whoopee cushions, um, ventriloquist dummies, um, riddle books, cheap pocket knives, and ugly masks. And that was just the first two pages. The thing had about 200 pages to it. And I would order it. I'd fill out uh, what I wanted. Mom would write a check, and we'd put it in the mail. And you remember how long we used to have to wait for that stuff? Four to six weeks. And I was looking for Mike the Mailman to come down the street at the four-week mark. He was one of my heroes because when he showed up after I had placed an order, I knew he was delivering the goods. When I saw him, I got excited about what I knew he was delivering to me that day. You know, as I think of Mike the Mailman, it's not, a, in my mind, a far trip to go from Mike to Peter. And what Peter is doing here in 1 Peter chapter 1, as we've stated, Peter is, is equipping his readers then to prepare for persecution. It was on the horizon, the shadow was over top of them, and it would come, as a matter of fact, this wave of persecution would even cost Peter his life. And his goal for writing this epistle is is to teach his members to suffer, or his readers, to suffer well. You say, why? Well, we saw in our first study, in verses 1 and 2, they need to learn to suffer well because of who they are, or we would say who we are. In verses 1 and 2, we find out that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. This isn't our final destination as God's people. He says, suffer well 
because of who you are, but then we also saw in verses 3 through 9 a second reason. He said, suffer well because of what you have. Say, what do believers have? We have a salvation that was initiated by a saving God and it's protected by God as are we, the inheritors of this salvation. It's like, wow, what we have and who we are. And Peter's like, yeah, you're going to need to know that a lot when suffering comes, when persecution comes because of the gospel. But that brings us to verses 10 through 12 this morning. And he's going to tell us again, in essence, to suffer well, not just because of who we are, not just because of what we have, but he's going to say in these three verses, suffer well because of how you know. How you know. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean, we want to ask Peter now, Peter, you've told us who we are, You told us what we have. How do you know that to tell that to us? It reminds me of Mike the mailman. Peter, in essence, is going to ask us, commend us, implore us to marvel at the messenger, to marvel at the mailman that tells us who we are and what we have. He's going to commend us this morning to marvel at the messenger, which is God's word. This is how we know who we are. This is how we know what we have. And he's going to tell us this morning, suffer well because of how you know all this. So what I want you to do this morning in these three verses is to take a careful, close look at the mailman, the messenger, the word of God. Marvel at it. Because when you see it through the lens of what Peter's going to hold up to it in these three verses, you will get excited again about what this messenger delivers. The first reality I want you to see, the first of four that will help you marvel at the word of God afresh, is this. The Old Testament prophets were intense. They were intense. You talk about intense, we just came through March Madness. And we had, we had, uh, uh, um, we had the, the brackets filled out. We lost sleep. Some of you stayed home from work because you developed on purpose a sniffle when it got down to the Final Four. And uh, we enjoy watching that, but why do we enjoy watching basketball, or many of us do? Because as we watch these young players, these young college athletes at the top of their game, at the, at the end of the season, after the season, into the postseason, at this tournament, the largest basketball college stage, there's an intensity that we see on their faces. We watch their ball control. We watch their ability to elevate and, 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 and do a slam dunk. We, we watch the plays unfold on the floor. We watch the skillful defense. We love the call plays and the substitutions. But there's just something beyond all that on the face of these young athletes. And it's a, it's a focus. It's, it's an intensity. Can I even use this word? It's, there's a good stress to them in those moments. And I think of that when I come to verse 10 of 1 Peter 1. In verse 10, it's very tense. It's very intense about something. Look at verse 10. 
as to this salvation. You say, what salvation? The salvation he had been writing about and has even mentioned, look at verse 5, you are protected by the power of God through faith, here it is, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then again in verse 9, he ended with this last time, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, look at, there it is again, the salvation of your souls. And he comes into verse 10 and he mentions the salvation again. It says, this is the salvation I'm talking about. This is the salvation that says who you are and what you have. That salvation, as to this salvation, listen, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. In verse 2, as he opened this letter, he called attention to the grace and peace of God the Father. And here he says, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets were very intense about understanding just a little about everything that they were writing. There was an intensity there. I love what the commentator Schreiner says in his excellent commentary on 1 Peter. He says, The salvation believers experience now, which will be consummated in the future, was also prophesied in the past. And these Old Testament prophets, as they prophesied by the Spirit of God of this grace, were eager to understand it themselves. They were obedient messengers. They were relaying the message of God to the people, to the Jews in the Old Testament specifically. But even they, the prophets, the messengers, couldn't actually put it all together in their mind. They were were studying their own work. And they were studying prophets who came before them in light of what they had said and in what these previous prophets said. There's what we call here an intensive compound. Peter uses two different words, not so much to to do two separate word studies, but but to communicate. They were really leaning into their own writings. They were intense. It says here in verse 10, they made careful searches. That's the first description. And then, secondly, inquiries. Uh, that, that, that phrase in the English, made careful searches, means to seek something out from every angle. That word inquiries, in the translation I'm using, is a word that means to analyze the details. And Peter's saying, I'm, I'm bringing these two words together, as other r- biblical writers have done, at least in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Um, and even some contemporary writers of Peter, they would bring these two words together to communicate that this wasn't just a passing interest. It wasn't something that, you know, I haven't thought about that in a while. I'm going to think about that now. This kind of intensity consumed the Old Testament prophets. Put faces to them. Think Isaiah. Think Zechariah. Think Malachi. Think Daniel. They, they, just, they just wanted to understand this. I want to I give you an exa- a couple of examples. Hold your finger here in 1 Peter and go with me to Daniel. 
the book of Daniel. I just want you to see times when even the likes of Daniel pushed his chair back from the desk, if you will, and was like, what does this mean? What does this mean? The visions I'm seeing, and what's this little horn? And we could go on and on. Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, Then I, Daniel, I was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But, look at this, I was astounded at the vision. And there was none to explain it. Here, Daniel, again, go to Daniel chapter 12. Just as an example, there's many examples we could go to. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 8. Daniel says, as for me, verse 8, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And I'm not sure he was wanting the answer he got in verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And then verse 13, as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end, and then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. As much as Daniel revealed, as God revealed through Daniel, Daniel couldn't even grasp it all. And so what did Daniel do? Like the other Old Testament prophets, he made careful searches and inquiries. I even think that when in Matthew chapter 11, remember John the Baptist, who Jesus said is one of the greatest prophets, which means it's still pre-cross, he's an Old Testament prophet technically. John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to say, are you, the, are you the one we're waiting for, the Messiah? You know, John could be in jail saying, you know, I, I know I baptized you and I know what we've seen and what I've heard. I know we've known each other most of our lives, but I'm just checking because I'm still in jail and you're not reigning. Is, are, you are the one, right? Now, John wasn't doubting. He was doing careful inquiry. He was intense, careful search and inquiries. See, what was it that these Old Testament prophets were leaning into? Well, Peter tells us, he says, they were leaning into this grace, he says, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. The Old Testament prophets were looking through what God was revealing to them, and they realized there is a grace coming, and it's not just to the Jews. These Jewish prophets are revealing that this grace that's coming will not only affect us, but it will affect the nations, the Gentiles. That doesn't make sense on the surface. I don't want to show you an example of this. Keep your finger in 1 Peter. I want you to go this time to Isaiah. And you're going to hear Isaiah prophesy of a grace. He's not always going to use that word, but it's a, it's a salvation, listen, that's promised that will affect the nations. It's grace to those who don't deserve it. Isaiah 55, look at verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me. And eat what's good. 
Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples. Plural. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know and a nation which knows you not will, will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and he will return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now that was a call to the Jews who were apostate from God at that time, as almost a nation that doesn't even know their God, and I think that's the first um, implication here of this message, but the New Testament is going to make a reach for verses like these, when it's argued that from the beginning, from all the prophets, it has been prophesied that the Gentiles will enter a salvation, a salvific, saving relationship with our God. You go a few pages to the right and you read of the servant of God, which is Messiah, Jesus. And just look at this grace that characterizes the future Messiah. And, and we're still with Isaiah, so this is a Messiah that will affect the nations, not just the Jews. And by the way, this is the passage that Jesus himself read in his own, um, in his own hometown of Nazareth when they were going to stone him. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he has glorified. Here we have just one example of many in the Old Testament of a grace that's going to come in the future. And this grace will pursue those Jews who are in rebellion against God, but also overflow and affect the nations. Which, by the way, was even promised in Genesis through the seed of Abraham. And these prophets are just fixated on, on making sense of this because it sounds so wonderful. On one hand, it seems confusing. On another time, it seems exciting. This book was making the call all along. But there's another reality about the messenger, about the scripture, that Peter wants to call your attention to. Not just the intensity of the Old Testament prophets, but number two, the Spirit's predictions. What about the Spirit's predictions? The Spirit's predictions in the Old Testament were concrete. I mean, it would be convenient to say that everything was abstract, but there, was, there were details given very concrete, specific details given by the Spirit through these prophets. As a matter of fact, look at verse 11 of 1 Peter 1. They made careful searches and inquiries, verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating 
as he predicted two things. The sufferings of Messiah, Christ, and the glories to follow. The Spirit was very particular as he revealed his plan through the prophets to include there's going to be suffering for Messiah. And there will be, plural, glories of Messiah. By the way, don't miss the fact that as Peter's saying this in verse 11, he's giving us some very instructive insight into this whole concept of the inspiration of Scripture. It says the Spirit of Christ prophesied what would come. Verse 10, verse 11, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, communicating, revealing these details. When Peter comes around to writing his second epistle before he is martyred, he's going to dwell on this a little bit more. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21, through 21, he's going to say, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It's not someone saying, I think I'm going to write God's words down today. Or at least I'm going to speak God's words between 11 and 12 o'clock a.m. No. No. The Spirit was in control of the what and the when. He says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, and I love this phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit. Sounds like what we're seeing in chapter 1, verse 11 of 1 Peter. The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. He says here, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This, this word move is, is an important Greek word. You've studied it before. <clears throat> it's a word pharaoh. And it means, it means to, to have, you know, think of a, a, sail, a, a ship, a sailboat. And the wind just fills that sail and moves that boat where it's supposed to go. That's a beautiful picture of how God revealed his word through these men. And God used all different types of personalities, all different types of settings, all different tr- types of, of vocabularies and backgrounds and professions when he chose his instruments that he would inspire his word through. And, uh, and it came out to be a beautiful whole as we have here. Say, well, what do, we, what, do we, what do we do with this? Well, it's right here you need to see that the Spirit gave important specifics that these prophets were trying to wrestle with. How can Messiah be glorious? They loved that part. But other passages speak of the suffering servant or, or Messiah going through, through suffering, indeed, before the glory. Both had to happen. But by the time Christ is walking the earth, of course, the Jews were wanting to focus on and emphasize the glories. Please come, Messiah. Save us from Rome, like now. Do all the stuff in the sky that you prophesied, and, and we want to be in charge of Israel now. Actually, we don't mind taking over the whole world, but we'll start here. Just, Messiah, where are you? We're expecting you. I like what commentator William MacDonald says. Quote, They did not understand that these two events, suffering and glory, would be separated by at least 1,900 years. He writes, as has often been pictured, they saw the two mountain peaks. They saw Calvary, where Jesus suffered, 
And they saw Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives where he will return in glory, but they did not see the valley which lay between those two mountains. That's now. That's right now. They just really struggle. And, and not just the Old Testament writers, prophets, but even our Lord's disciples. Peter knew something about this. We studied through Luke recently. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We'll be back to 1 Peter in a moment. Luke chapter 18. This is the story in this passage of the rich young ruler. We also see in this passage the Pharisee and the publican praying differently. We get to the end of the rich young ruler and Peter speaks up, the author of what we're studying over in 1 Peter. Peter says, Behold, Lord, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Well, that's speaking of glory. Peter would have sat up in his chair there and said, That's what I'm talking about. And then verse 31 happens. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Okay, look, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And look at this. All things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. What, you're going to take your throne? No. No. Messiah will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated, and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Look at verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that, they were, said, that, that were said. You remember that time Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, and then who do you say I am? What did, what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. That's the right answer. And you didn't even say that. The Father lets you say that. And then right after that, right after that, while the echo's still bouncing around in the room, or outdoors, um, Jesus says, but i got to suffer first. And who speaks up? Remember? Peter! And Peter says, nah, not on my watch, you're not. Not with my loyalty. I don't know about these other guys, but not with my loyalty. And Jesus says, get behind me, what? Say, even in those moments, they weren't able to fit together the Messiah experiencing glory, but also suffering. Remember what he said to his disciples after his resurrection? This is in Luke 24, 46 to 47. He said to them, thus it's written... That Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Remember that? As a matter of fact, even after the resurrection, right before the ascension, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are still looking for the glory of the kingdom. Are you going to establish it now? The Old Testament says it's going to start on Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Olivet or the Mount of Olives. We're standing on it now. You've been dead. You're alive. You're standing. Is, is it going to come now 
And our Lord even has to tell them then, it's not for you to know when this is going to happen. But for right now, concern yourself with one thing, you be my witnesses and take my message to the nations. The Spirit's predictions were concrete. There's going to be glory. But there's going to be suffering as well. You say, well, how, how accurate was this in verse 11? Well, it says this, it doesn't say just the spirit within them was indicating. It says the spirit of who? The spirit of Christ, the spirit of Messiah was foretelling his own glory and his own suffering in the Old Testament. Those are specific details. And by the way, that phrase, the spirit of Christ, is proof of Christ's preexistence. It's second person of the Trinity. You say, well, does this, all this end in the Old Testament? No, no, no. Because of the third reality that Peter wants us to see. The New Testament preachers were clear. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, those Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, as they wrote, but you. I want you to note that. But you. He's writing to Jew and Gentile believers, Peter is. He says, they were serving you in these things which now have been announced. Here it is again a second time. To you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There's an emphasis here on the you. Even the Old Testament prophets knew that I, I just won't know everything I'm writing for a generation to come. And Peter's saying to his readers, they were talking about you. And I say to you, in the room with me and online with me right now, he was talking about us. We have the details together that the Old Testament prophets did not have a full picture of. And even the disciples, even after the resurrection initially, didn't have the right details of. You and I know the details. And Peter's emphasizing the you here in this verse to talk about you. To talk about us, the readers, who have this fuller knowledge. The full picture. We know the timing when Messiah would come. Because he's come. We know about his suffering. We know about his glories. It's like, if, if what did I have the prophets before? The prophets of this direction of the pulpit. And they're looking through their prophecy to something that's going to come, and they know some of the details, but they can't make sense of it. Let's let this pulpit represent the cross. And then after the cross, we have the resurrection and the ascension. And then we have his readers, Peter's readers, down there, and we're down there. In 2023, these prophets were looking ultimately over past this, including the cross and the resurrection and ascension, and landing somewhere where we are now, before our time, but still after the ascension initially, once the disciples had their details dialed in by the Lord himself, perhaps teaching them during those several weeks he was with them after the resurrection definitely by inspiration 
But we know this, that when they started cutting loose and, and authoring the gospel accounts and the epistles, they had the details together. They agreed with each other, though separated sometimes by continents and oceans. And we have a beautiful whole of what we call Scripture now. We, we have the full picture. We have it. They didn't. They didn't at first. We do every day when we wake up. And it wasn't just the sufferings, the plural sufferings I want to direct your attention to. We know of the scourging. We know of the, the, the blasphemies. We know of the cross. We know of the crown of thorns. We know of, um, of, of beyond all that suffering when he hung on the cross and the wrath of God was being absorbed in his body to the point where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know all that suffering but don't miss the fact that the glories is plural as well. It's not just the resurrection, the glory of the resurrection. When we talk about the glories of Messiah, we know that he rose from the dead. That's glory. We know that in the, in the view of his disciples, he ascended to heaven. That's glory. We know in heaven, he has taken the seat at the Father's right hand. That's glory. He's building his church. That's glory. We know that he will return in great glory for his church and then again in judgment. And he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. That's glory. He will judge at the final judgment. That's glory. We haven't seen all that yet. But we know it's coming. Well, there's one more detail I want to share with you that Peter directs our attention to. To cause us to marvel at the mailman of God's word in order to suffer well. What's the fourth reality? It's the angels. The angels. Don't miss the reality that the holy angels are even curious about this salvation. Look at verse 12 again. It says at the end of verse 12, these are things into which angels long to look. You say, what are the things? Verses 1 through the middle of verse 12. That God would take a person and rescue them and change them and give them an inheritance of eternity with him. And, 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 and he would be the one to initiate this. They're being born again into this. And he would defend it. This is what the prophets have been talking about the whole time, including that first level of, of prophets and, and apostles, this side of the cross. He says, but they're not the only ones that have been interested in it. It's the angels too. These are things into which angels long to look. Angels long to look. That's an interesting word. I can't leave that alone, that phrase, long to look. It's a word that means to stretch your head like this. I mean, your head crank. It's like when there's, there's an accident on I-94 and there's backup of traffic and, and you get up there, what do you do with your, your head? You're, you're doing this like everyone else. Um, gawkers or whatever they call them on the, on the radio traffic watch thing. It's just straining your head. You've got to keep moving, but you want to get a glimpse or the guy who's driving, my wife and I went to a piano concert in downtown Detroit Friday night with uh, another pastoral couple, and, 
And, uh, and there was a guy driving erratically in front of me that Friday evening, and I'm like, well, he's intoxicated. And uh, he was driving slowly and, and going off the side a lot, and I'd seen that a lot as a police chaplain riding. And, uh, and so I wanted to get around him because I don't want his erratic driving to affect us. We're on a date. And, and so I got around him as the other cars were doing, and, and whenever my wife and I are in a car and we have to do something like that, I'll usually say this so I can keep my eye on the road. I'll say, as we catch up with the person, what do we got? What do we got? And she'll look just nonchalantly as I, as I go by, and she'll report the age and, and if indeed they're intoxicated or whatever. And it's just what we, we say all the time. What do you got? What do you got? I don't have to look. I'll make her look. That's actually the idea here. As time is unfolding, these angels, as scenes come and scenes go, and assignments come and assignments go, they're craning their heads as to what's happening in Bridget's life. How does that happen? These are the angels that serve our Lord. They are not the ones who will be suffering for eternity, the demons. They're straining their heads. They just want a solid glimpse Because, listen, angels can only study redemption, not experience it. It's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? That Messiah himself, Jesus himself, listen, is teaching the angels through you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4 9, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle not only to the world but to the angels. When Paul's giving some regulations about worship in corporate gatherings in 1 Corinthians 11, he kind of inserts this one phrase, because of the angels. Even in Ephesians 3.10, Paul writes, so that the manifold wisdom of God, talking about salvation, the same salvation Peter's talking about, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Messiah himself is teaching the angels through us. Gabriel gets the assignment to carry a, a message to to Daniel in the Old Testament, then to a young teenage girl named Mary in the New Testament. And Gabriel's craning his head the whole time. This thing's unfolding. This thing's unfolding. Since this angelic straining is true, can you imagine the awe as angels were called upon to be key players at the Messiah's birth. Remember the shepherds? We're told in the Gospels that when our Lord went through the temptations from Satan himself, it says afterwards the angels came and ministered to him. Can you imagine the angels getting the assignment to minister to our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, which the Gospel tells us they did? Can you imagine the angels tugging at the gates when Jesus says, don't you think I could call 10,000 angels? Can you imagine the angels' interest when they got the assignment to announce, go down to the empty grave and wait, someone's going to be coming, they need to hear from you. Just say he's not here anymore. 
and the angels that showed up at his ascension in Acts chapter 1. How about those angels? And then all through the book of Acts, opening gates, opening prison doors. Can you imagine those angelic creatures leaning into that? Then you can probably catch a little glimpse of the angelic creatures mentioned in Revelation 5 in the future. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it, including the angels. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. For behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Yeah, can you imagine the angels in that scene? I guess here's the haunting question. What have the angels learned from you today about the Redeemer and his redemption of you? you? Say, what do you mean? Well, the angels are not just marveling, listen, that you have been rescued. They are set to marvel over how a rescued, saved person is transformed, listen, even in the worst of times, even in the midst of suffering. What have the angels learned from me and from you just today? Look where the very next verse is going to take us in our next study. Therefore, that means because of all this, especially where I ended, the angels are learning. Reader, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in verses 14 through 16, he's going to say, Be holy, for God is holy. We are saved to stand out and declare with our lives and our words the glory and holiness of our Father who initiated the whole thing. holy angels are curious. Well, whenever I saw mailman Mike coming up the walkway on Newport Avenue off of 11 Mile Road, I got excited because I knew what he was delivering. And as I come to 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, Peter says, never get over the fact of what it is that the messenger delivers the messenger being the word of God. Since the beginning of scripture all the way to the end, it's been made clear 
So you can suffer well. You can suffer well. A couple of concluding thoughts for 2023. The message is complete. We have all we're going to get, and we have all we need. So rejoice. Rejoice over the sufficiency of Scripture, especially as it explains how did you even get into Christ at all. I like what Paul writes to Timothy in some of his final words to him. He says in 2 Timothy 3.15, you've known from childhood the Scriptures which give you the wisdom to salvation. Rejoice in the sufficiency of Scripture. Number two, since the message is alive, it's a living book, review it regularly. Make this be your anchor. It's why Peter has taken 12 verses to prepare people how to suffer. Just to introduce a book on suffering. Persecution. This is your anchor. And Jerry Bridges was right all those years ago when he was writing, preach the gospel again to yourself every single day. You need that anchor dropped when you have to suffer in your marriage, in your home, in your work, on your campus, because of your identity as a Christian who takes the Bible literally. You're going to need an anchor to drop. What is it? It's this word. And then thirdly, the message is instructive. So just follow it. Obey it. Peter's turning this corner when we come back to the study into chapter 1, verse 13. And he's going to start, for the first time, the imperatives. What do we do? Because of who we are. What is the difference between now and our glory? Hey, by the way, if Messiah had to suffer before he entered into his glory, what do you think that means for us? We're going to have to suffer. We will be persecuted before our ultimate glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this salvation that you continue to bring us back to in our study through 1 Peter. It's not only who we are and what we have, but how we even know. It's only through Scripture. But Lord, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, Peter will write in 2 Peter 1. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, we have. So I pray that this will be, this will be a challenge that we receive by your grace to move towards this book every day. May this be the anchor in our days. May this be the wisdom in our moments, may this book and its promises be our power in the storm. And not just a book that holds the coffee cup from Sunday afternoon to Saturday night. This book is everything. And I pray if anyone is here under the sound of my voice who has yet to enter a saving relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see their sin and the beauty of Christ. Help them to run from their sin and confess it to you and embrace you as their Messiah, as their Savior from their sin and as the Lord of their lives. Would you do that, Lord? Open their eyes. Give them this faith and repentance so that they are born again. And they join 
they join the parade of the redeemed, moving through the most difficult assignments of life, even suffering, with a resolute gait towards the future glory you've promised us. Open your eyes, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.